enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. It's good to be back on this academic research grind, recording out of my closet, enjoying the weirdly comforting claustrophobia of my clothes and shoes and sundries. So way back in February, I made it through a truly massive episode on radio astronomy. I had just gotten feedback that my podcasts are too technical, but then I released an episode where I had to describe a device called an interferometer, which I'm not even sure I'm saying correctly. (laughs) I don't make it easy for the average listener to enjoy a space podcast, I guess. I'm hoping this episode will serve as a decent recap of some of the electromagnetic spectrum observations I talked about when I dove into radio astronomy. The best way to learn anything is reinforcement. It will also be an exploration of a different area of observational astronomy. Airborne astronomy. Not orbital or satellite, but airborne. There are a lot of telescopes orbiting Earth right now, and a fair number that have orbited in the past and are still up there. We're decent at getting things to orbit, less interested in getting them back down, as far as I can tell. There's a really disturbing infographic map of all the space junk up there, and I am included it in my notes on um, satellites, spacecraft, and probes, but I'll link to it in this post as well. The orbiting telescopes detect different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum, and this is how they produce usable images and data for astronomers to interpret. They are all detecting photons, which is the particle that produces every kind of energy on the electromagnetic spectrum. The type of electromagnetic energy that the photon produces depends on how much energy the particle has. Gamma rays are the most energetic. And if you see an electromagnetic spectrum chart, the wavelengths of these guys are very, very close together. This means that they have a very high frequency. The amount of energy and the frequency of the photon waves decreases as you move from gamma rays to x-rays, ultraviolet light, visible light, infrared, microwaves, and radio waves. So I've already spoken about radio waves. They're the most low-energy waves with the lowest frequency. They sound like a major bummer, but really it just means that the waves are far apart as the particles of photons travel across the vast distances of space. We're going to talk about infrared waves today. These are less energetic and have a lower frequency than visible light. This basically means that we can't see them. But, because they're only one step down from visible light, human beings do detect infrared, as heat. Have you ever seen those cameras that detect heat? I used to play with them at the local science museum, and the Mac photo booth filter has an infrared setting that's really just bullshit. But the cameras are supposed to show cooler things as blue and warmer things as red or yellow or white, depending on how hot they are. Infrared cameras show up in movies, too, when people are trying to detect how many heat sources are in a particular building or something like that. Astronomers use observatories to detect infrared radiation because infrared is able to pass through clouds of gas and dust. 
Because infrared has a longer wavelength than visible light, it can reveal details that are invisible to other types of radiation. This means that a lot of infrared observatories are aimed at stars and planets to determine how they form out of dust and gases, and they're also aimed at the cores of galaxies to get more information about supermassive black holes. But there are also special observatories built to observe infrared, like more special than the observatories that already exist on mountains or orbiting the Earth. The gases in Earth's atmosphere absorb radiation in certain wavelengths and allow radiation with other wavelengths to pass through. The areas of the electromagnetic spectrum that are absorbed by atmospheric gases, like water vapor, carbon dioxide, ozone, all that good stuff, are known as absorption bands. There are also areas of the electromagnetic spectrum where the atmosphere is transparent, or does not absorb the radiation of specific wavelengths. These wavelength bands are atmospheric windows, as they allow the radiation to pass through the atmosphere and reach Earth's surface. Infrared is largely absorbed by Earth's atmosphere, so NASA has developed plane-based telescopes that can fly up above the infrared-absorbing areas of Earth's atmosphere and capture infrared that way. Really, I just want to talk about SOFIA. The acronym stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, and it's a big plane. It's a big plane that flies around and collects space data. It has been active since 2010 and was preceded by the Kuiper Airborne Observatory in its detection of infrared radiation. But it was preceded even before Kuiper by other early attempts at airborne astronomy. Just as they always said in school, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, facilitated the first airplane flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina in 1903. Wikipedia tells me that the actual flight took place four miles south of Kitty Hawk in the Kill Devil Hills, which sounds even more badass. This was the era of biplanes, which are not bisexual pilots, though I support that fully, but are the planes with two sets of wings, one stacked on top of the other, with some structural fixins in that plane wing sandwich. Have you ever seen videos of people wing walking? A lot of women did this. It's an extremely cool stunt. I'll include a video link in one example. Anyway, wing walking happened in the early 1900s with biplanes. I'd imagine people did it because they have two levels to work with, so you can step out onto the lower set of wings and then work your way up to the top set of wings where you're standing on the top of the plane. <laughs> I digress, but not too far from my main point. According to an article published in the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics in 1997, the U.S. Navy undertook one of the first airborne astronomy attempts using 16 Navy biplanes. They were trying to photograph a solar eclipse on September 10, 1923. It was an unsuccessful mission, but I'm not surprised. It was one of the earliest attempts at air photography of an astronomical phenomenon. That is a lot of extremely difficult factors to account for. If you'll recall from way back in episode 3 of this podcast, photographing astronomical things was hard enough just from the ground. Put all that sensitive equipment on an airplane? Forget about it. That first attempt to photograph an eclipse kicked off the movement towards plane observations, though, so it was far from a failure. It was also the first airborne astronomical observation performed by Captain Albert W. Stevens, who was a member of the Army Air Corps. Captain Stevens later participated in the Honey Lake Airborne Eclipse Expedition of 1930, a National Geographic Society eclipse in 1932, and various other photography missions from aircraft and balloons, even. <laughs> The 1930 Honey Lake Expedition actually took film footage of the eclipse. They had a motion picture camera mounted on the plane and shot the one-and-a-half-second-long eclipse from the air. 
Captain Stevens was in charge of operating that camera, and it was successful. The National Geographic Society mission in 1932 was a joint effort with the Army Air Corps, and Captain Stevens had to take eclipse photographs at an altitude of 27,000 feet. To put that in perspective, mountain climbers call any height above 26,000 feet the death zone. The higher up you get in the atmosphere, the less pressure there is. So even though the amount of oxygen in the air is the same, there's less breathable air all around, and it's way colder than closer to Earth's surface. Planes in the 1930s were open to the elements, so the National Geographic Society mission bundled up and used oxygen tanks to prevent hypoxia, or insufficient oxygen in the blood. Except Captain Stevens. He was in the back of the airplane working the cameras. He couldn't access the oxygen tanks. Now, hypoxia symptoms can go a few different ways. If you spend too long without sufficient oxygen, you can get altitude sickness, which manifests as vertigo, nausea, weakness, hyperventilation, slowed thinking, poor coordination, dimmed vision, and increased heart rate. I also read that it's pretty common to pass out if you go above 25,000 feet. To keep the hypoxia confusion and disorientation from affecting his photography, Captain Stevens wrote instructions to himself in large letters on tape and stuck them to the cameras he was manipulating. To make sure he was getting the right phenomena in frame, he communicated with the plane's pilot by yipping at the guy. Two yips meant turn right, one yip meant turn left. If he kept doing double yips, it meant to keep turning right. God, I am picturing this... And I love science so much. <laughs> a quick tangent, but I found an article on high-altitude hypoxia that has four gas laws in it, and I'm very excited to know these. Dalton's Law, Henry's Law, Graham's Law, and Boyle's Law. All these different laws address how altitude affects the body, and I'm going to include them in the show notes because I can do what I want, but I won't go into them right now. They're only vaguely relevant to airborne astronomy, which I will refocus on right now. The National Geographic mission of 1932 was a huge success. Captain Stevens got several usable photos that were published in that year's National Geographic magazine, and the National Geographic kept sponsoring eclipse photography flights. Bad weather during an eclipse in 1948 was not a problem for the two B-29 aircraft, we're out of biplane territory now, that photographed eclipse totality, and the magazine also sponsored jet airplane eclipse photography in 1963. The 1963 expedition also used a spectrograph to record a spectrum of a narrow band of the sun's corona, and it took infrared measurements of the sun's upper atmosphere. Remember infrared? We'll get back to that momentarily. The 60s were a major turning point for airborne astronomy. From January 1, 1964 to December 31, 1965, there was a predicted minimum of solar activity, so that span was designated the International Quiet Solar Year. Globally, scientists coordinated tests and measurements of solar phenomena that could be taken during this time. It was after the National Geographic 1963 eclipse photography from a jet that scientists at NASA decided to use their own high-flying jet aircraft for astronomy. NASA bought a plane in 1964 with help from team leader Michael Bader to use as an airborne science platform. Its first mission was to photograph the solar eclipse of May 30, 1965. They were still firmly in that international quiet solar year. This mission was international, too, and included scientists from the U.S., Switzerland, the Netherlands, Italy, and Belgium. During totality, Italian professor Guglielmo Regini looked out at the eclipse and spotted the bright moons of Jupiter. Because these were the first objects Galileo had spotted with his telescope, 
Regini suggested that the plane be named Galileo, which NASA quickly approved. Galileo operated from 1965 to 1973 and took data on eclipses, the comet Ikea-Seiki, the opposition of Mars, I have no idea what that means, uh, the Jacobin meteor shower, and solar constants. Gerard Kuiper, who was a Dutch-American astronomer and the namesake of the Kuiper belt of asteroids beyond Neptune, he flew in Galileo to obtain near-infrared spectra of bright planets free from contamination of the Earth's atmosphere. His observations of Venus proved that the clouds of Venus were not made of water, which was good to know. People at the time still thought Venus might be habitable. <laughs> Unfortunately, in 1973, Galileo and the crew were lost in a mid-air collision while attempting to land. The aircraft was replaced with another plane, Galileo 2, but it wasn't used very much for airborne astronomy, because by then, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory was in operation. I'll get to the Kuiper Airborne Observatory in a moment, but there was one other major plane that NASA constructed in order to observe astronomical objects and phenomena, and this one was built for infrared. The astronomer Kuiper saw a need for an open port, meaning you weren't looking out of a window, airborne telescope for far infrared observations. NASA constructed a 12-inch open-port reflecting telescope in a NASA Learjet, and the first astronomical observations aboard this Learjet took place in 1968. The Learjet contributed to infrared astronomy discoveries in planetary, stellar, and galactic phenomena. It flew at 45,000 to 50,000 feet and measured the internal energies of Jupiter and Saturn, made far-infrared observations of the Orion Nebula, studied star formation regions and the center of the Milky Way, and helped show that Venus's atmosphere is actually sulfuric acid, not water droplets. Astronomers in the Learjet had to wear oxygen masks because they were well above the atmosphere. That's kind of the downside of open-door telescopes and airplanes. You're running into the same issues of cold and hypoxia that Captain Stevens encountered in his biplane flights, but they were almost twice as high up in Earth's atmosphere as he was. The Learjet stayed on active duty even after the Kuiper Airborne Observatory was launched. Kuiper was dedicated in 1975, named in honor of the infrared astronomer Gerard Kuiper, who had died in 1963 of a heart attack. It was a converted military cargo plane with a 36-inch gyro-balanced reflecting telescope capable of infrared astronomy. It was constructed during the same time that Galileo was operational, which allowed Galileo to keep conducting atmospheric and meteorological flights while Kuiper was constructed. Kuiper was a bigger, more stable plane than both Galileo and NASA's Learjet. It could fit 20 scientists, while the Learjet could only fit two. Kuiper could also stay in the air longer. An average flight time on Kuiper lasted seven and a half hours, while the Learjet could manage a two and a half hour flight at best. The telescope on Kuiper was also sealed, so the cabin could be pressurized enough that the crew didn't have to wear oxygen masks. Kuiper Airborne Observatory's aerial photography led to multiple discoveries, including the nine rings around the planet Uranus, water in Jupiter's atmosphere, the self-luminosity of Jupiter, Saturn, and Pluto, and the fact that Pluto straight up has an atmosphere. It also detected water vapor in comets, the composition, structure, and dynamics of a 1987 supernova, the structure of the Milky Way's galactic center, a natural interstellar infrared laser, 
and the structure of star-forming clouds. Kuiper Airborne Observatory massively advanced the field of study around star birth and the conditions in space that affect formation. For the 20 years it was active, Kuiper flew about 70 missions a year, soaring at altitudes of 41,000 to 45,000 feet, above 99% of the Earth's infrared-absorbing water vapor. The reason there's a range for these flights and how high they were is because as the flight goes on and fuel gets burned up, the plane gets lighter and can fly to a higher altitude. So the Kuiper would start at 41,000 feet, and by the end of the flight, when most of the fuel was gone, it could get up to 45,000 feet. The last three years it was active, Kuiper Airborne Observatory ran an education program that included flight opportunities for school teachers. The mission leaders of Kuiper Airborne Observatory were Carl Gillespie and Jim McClanahan, but the whole team worked together in truly amazing ways. You have to be a certain kind of badass to be willing to fly all night for nearly eight hours, and folks would write poetry and sing songs that they had composed about the Kuiper Airborne Observatory. Team member Wendy Dulcie compiled a booklet of after the Airborne Observatory was retired in 1996 called The Lonely Dark Night Sky, which collected songs and poems that Kuiper team members had composed. The reason Kuiper was retired was to make way for SOFIA. That's the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. The SOFIA plane was originally a Pan Am carrier plane named the Clipper Lindbergh in honor of the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, who was known for being a really good pilot in the 1920s. The Lindbergh baby kidnapping is what I know Lindbergh from, unfortunately. Their kid was taken, they paid their ransom, and then they found the boy's body, and it took a few years before they caught the person who did it. It was a big deal. Anyway, Lindbergh's widow, Anne, personally christened the Clipper Lindbergh in 1977. United Airlines bought the plane from Pan Am in 1986, and then NASA bought it in 1997 and made major modifications to make it an observatory by 2007, including renaming it Sophia. The major physical modifications included installing the 2.7-meter, 20-ton telescope in the rear of the plane. This telescope is open to the sky, which poses a major challenge to pilots trying to keep the plane steady. It meant retrofitting the aircraft's structural supports, and the interior of Sophia is also retrofitted so that scientists and educators have space to work as well. You can't just have a telescope and a pilot. You need to be able to have people interpret what's coming through the telescope, too. What's also cool is that they are able to switch out the cameras in Sophia with a lot of care, obviously. Sophia underwent some serious initial flight testing before they declared it look-at-space-worthy, and it had its first 100% open-door flight in 2009, which I'm pretty sure means that they opened the doors to get some serious photography done. It took images of Jupiter and the Messier 82 galaxy in 2010 for the first time in what's called its first light flight. It has also flown internationally. It operated out of California for the first few years of its career, and that state is still its primary base of operations, but Sophia has flown in Germany and went to New Zealand to observe the Southern Hemisphere skies in 2013. It studied the comet Ison that same year as well. It's been used to study a bunch of different astronomical objects and phenomena, including star birth and death, the formation of new solar systems and their ecosystems like nebulae, dust, and supermassive black holes, planets, comets, and asteroids in our solar system, and complex molecules in outer space. SOFIA was built in an 80-20 partnership between NASA and the German Aerospace Center. It has eight observational instruments, five from the U.S. and three from Germany, and these are cameras, spectrometers, a photometer, and a focal plane imager, which I really don't want to get into. 
I'd have to do a lot more talking about something that isn't airborne astronomy. Sophia is, as of the recording of this podcast, almost 11 years into its planned 20-year lifespan as an observatory. So, that's aerial astronomy and infrared astronomy. I didn't anticipate covering both, but they related to each other a lot, so I don't feel particularly guilty. There's a history of taking photos of astronomical phenomena from planes that dates all the way back to the earliest planes, and that's incredible to me. And needing to get way up above the water vapor to view infrared was, I guess, as good a reason as any to put infrared telescopes in a plane or two. So, I talked about the NASA's Learjet, Kuiper Astronomical Observatory, and the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy at last. For the next episode, I still want to look into Chuck Yeager, Stephen Hawking and his theories, and maybe that dang transit of Venus I keep hinting at. I said something about the opposition of Mars earlier, and I didn't have time to sate my curiosity there. And I also said something about Comet Ikea-Seiki, which is not spelled like the Swedish furniture outlet, so I could investigate that. Maybe just famous comets in general. Sika has also sent me quite a few awesome articles about developments and discoveries in the astronomer community, and someone sent me an article about an atmospheric phenomenon called Steve, so... I'm happy to take suggestions, but this all sounds kind of perfect for me to cover. If you want to hear me talk about something that's related to space, I take suggestions over Tumblr, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and if you enjoy what I do, maybe give me a rating and a review. I'd love to hear what you enjoy about this now year's worth of space information. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it sprouts my tulip bulbs. I can pinky promise that the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to bloom your rhododendrons too. The next episode will hopefully be up on April 30th. I'm going to try and get back into that every other Monday groove, but I can't promise anything. I love this podcast, but it doesn't pay any bills and in fact generates some costs to me, so I do prioritize the gigs that, you know, pay me. Find me some voice acting or audiobook work, and I'm there. But until that time, it's a full-time job and two part-time jobs, and then this glorious space adventure. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. <laughs>